It's the video series that has been seen in every country on the planet. Maybe you've seen it, The Chosen. And now comes a novel by best-selling author Jerry Jenkins by that same title, The Chosen. We'll talk with him, get the story behind the story, on today's edition of The Land and the Book. Welcome. I'm John Geiger, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, who is just back from Israel, uh, getting uh, his sleep schedule uh, all, I think, back to normal. Charlie, good to be with you again. Well, thanks, John. We're getting back to normal. We're still not quite there yet. It takes a while. You know, they say a day for every hour, and when it's a 10 hours time difference, well, that takes us a, a little over a week to get back to this time zone. Yeah, for sure. Well, we'll begin our look at current events topics with this story. The next round of nuclear talks between the West and Iran are scheduled to begin this coming week. What can we realistically expect from these talks? Uh, the different parties to the talks have been trying to lower expectations, which suggests an agreement isn't likely, at least not from this upcoming round of talks. Uh, the U.S. has been working through our European allies to try to get Iran to return to the previous agreement or possibly to agree to an interim deal to serve as a temporary fix while negotiations continue. We've also been apparently trying to get China and Russia to pressure Iran to return to the agreement. However, China's purchase of oil from Iran in violation of sanctions has really undercut their willingness to apply any pressure. Now, for its part, Iran wants all sanctions, including those imposed for human rights violations, to be lifted before they return to the agreement. They also want an ironclad promise that the U.S. won't back away from an agreement again at some point in the future. The West is offering to remove most, though not necessarily all, sanctions after Iran resumes complying with the earlier agreement. The U.S. has also issued veiled threats that all other options are, quote, on the table should Iran walk away from this agreement, but Iran doesn't appear to be taking those threats seriously. Uh, they resumed production of parts to build additional centrifuges, and they see the U.S. encouraging Israel not to attack Iran's nuclear programs, even though Iran continues to try to launch attacks against Israel. But while the West might appear to be at a disadvantage in the upcoming negotiations, there is also pressure on Iran. Uh, the first pressure point is Israel. While Iran might not take the military threat from the West too seriously, they do take the threat from Israel very seriously, and Israel has said it won't be pressured by the West to stop. Israel has also said it won't allow Iran to reach the breakout point in developing nuclear weapons, and they've shown in the past with both Iraq and Syria that they're willing to strike militarily to stop such development. Uh, the second pressure point is economic. Iran is struggling economically, and the unrest within the country is growing. A week ago, massive protests took place in one large city over worsening economic conditions and massive water shortages. Protesters chanted slogans against the ruling authorities, including the Ayatollah. Now, these protests are still local in nature, but they serve as a reminder to the Iranian authorities that current economic conditions could lead to protests spiraling out of control. Iran will likely take a hard bargaining position and hope the West will be the ones to blink first and make sufficient economic concessions to allow them to improve on conditions within the country while still pursuing their military ambitions abroad. Well, in something of a first for the Middle East, an agreement between Israel and Jordan has been negotiated by the United Arab Emirates. What was negotiated, Charlie, and why is it so significant? Yeah, this is fascinating. The agreement was signed this past Monday, and it's a declaration of intent to provide solar energy for Israel and water for Jordan. A major solar power plant will be constructed in Jordan that will provide electricity for Israel. 
It will also power a new desalination plant in Israel, which will then be sending water back to Jordan. The agreement is a direct result of the Abraham Accords between Israel and the Gulf states, and it's actually the biggest regional cooperation project ever reached between Israel and her neighbors. For the past several decades, it's been the United States that's promoted agreements between the different countries in the Middle East. And though the U.S. did help somewhat in these negotiations, it was the United Arab Emirates working with both Israeli and Jordanian officials who helped bring this idea to completion. Hmm. Uh, The UAE will actually build the solar plant in Jordan, and Israel will then purchase the electricity. Israel will build another desalination plant in the Mediterranean and sell that water to Jordan. Jordan has vast areas of open space for the solar project, while Israel has access to the Mediterranean to build desalination plants. In effect, each country will use its own natural resources to benefit the other. The hope of everyone is that this can serve as a model for other cooperative projects that will help promote peace and prosperity in a region that has been struggling with shortages of both water and power. The projects themselves, well, they're going to take years to complete, but the signing of the agreement is a very positive first step. Maybe you joined us midstream, since we're on a water theme here. This is The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, Middle East expert. I'm John Geiger. We're looking at current events from that region for this week. In just under a month, Libya is scheduled to hold its presidential election. Will the election actually take place? And what do we know about the candidates, Charlie? Well, the preparations for the election are moving forward, but until it actually happens, no one is absolutely certain the vote will take place. The first round of voting is scheduled for December 24. Then, should there be no clear winner, a second round of voting will take place on January 24. Uh, One of the reasons for the uncertainty is that the voting was originally planned for early 2019, but it had to be delayed because of the civil war that broke out. An end to that fighting was negotiated, but the tensions still remain. Now, for this election, over 65 candidates have registered to run for president, including the current interim prime minister who had vowed not to run in the election when he was appointed. Part of the problem in Libya is that the official government, which the West has supported, has been dominated by Islamist groups, while the government in eastern Libya, controlled by Khalifa Haftar, has controlled most of the country. Right now, two candidates do seem to dominate the race. The first is Khalifa Haftar, while the second is former Libyan strongman Muammar Gaddafi's son, Saif al-Islam Gaddafi. Both men have been accused of war crimes, and those are charges which they both deny. Now, there are reports that Haftar has had quiet contacts with Israel and has said he would be willing to establish diplomatic relations with Israel should he get elected. He's also close to Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, and he has the support of France, Russia, and the United Arab Emirates. Three questions, though, remain to be answered. Will the election finally be held? Right. And if it is, will it be free of fraud and produce a clear winner? Mm -hmm. And then finally, will all the different factions agree to support whoever the new president might be? Now, sadly, John, if history is any indication... Don't look for peace and stability in Libya anytime soon. Hmm. Well, here's a question, Charlie. Is there archaeological support for the existence of the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Solomon? Several recent studies have tried to provide an answer. What can we learn about David and Solomon from archaeology? Yeah, we need to start by remembering that archaeology is a very inexact science. It's non-repeatable in the sense that once something's dug up, it can't be reburied and dug up again. 
And it's also subject to presuppositions and personal interpretation. Now, even after something's discovered, the debate over its meaning and significance can continue for years. Now, those problems have impacted the debate over the existence of the kingdom of David and Solomon. Were they real individuals? And if so, did they rule over a kingdom that matches what the Bible presents? Well, those of us who believe the Bible know the answer. And most modern archaeologists, sadly, begin with the assumption that David and Solomon didn't exist. Or if they did, they weren't as grand or powerful as the Bible suggests. And that's why these two recent articles I found so significant. They explore the evidence in a new and fascinating way. One article by an Israeli scholar argues that some of the problem has resulted from Western bias. We begin by assuming a kingdom had to be similar to what we have in the West. You know, if we don't find massive building projects, we assume the kingdom didn't exist. But this writer noted that Israel emerged from a nomadic society and that elements of that nomadic existence continued. Uh, One example he gave is what the people said following Solomon's death and the coronation of his son Rehoboam. When Rehoboam refused to lower taxes, 10 of the tribes rebelled and appointed Jeroboam as their king. And here's what they said, to your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. The scholars suggest that many in Israel could indeed still have been living in tents rather than permanent houses. Certainly the use of the word tent there might suggest that not finding a large number of permanent structures could have another explanation. Uh, The second article explored the problem a different way. Those archaeologists looked at architectural elements that have been found at different sites, and they discovered features like recessed doors, rectangular roof beams, proto-aeolic capitals on columns, and they said they were common in places around the region. In several instances, these common architectural elements were the earliest ever discovered at the sites, and what they think is this suggests a common style of architecture that took place in the 10th century BC, which happens to be the time of David and Solomon. They argue that enough evidence has been uncovered to show a common style of building developed, especially for monumental structures during that time. And as more discoveries are made, I'm confident they're going to continue to find evidence that supports the historicity of the Bible. Thanks, Charlie. Appreciate your doing the research and bringing us all these current events from the Middle East for the week. Check out our website, thelandandthebook.org, where you can find information about today's program and a link there to other great resources as well, thelandandthebook.org. Up next, a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Jerry Jenkins, his book, The Chosen, right here on The Land and the Book. The Chosen, it's the television series that's been seen in every country on the planet. Now there's a novel based on the videos. Up next, we're going to go behind the story for insights from best-selling author Jerry Jenkins. And then we'll immerse ourselves in Bible questions and answers. Plus, Charlie Dyer's devotional will take us to a very special place in Israel. Right now, though, let's think about a creative strategy for connecting with our Jewish friends. The easiest thing in the world to do is to let holidays come and go as holidays. But what if we used holidays as a way to convey something of the love of Yeshua to our Jewish friends? Justin Crone, you've got some thoughts. Oh, yeah. We have absolutely got to seize these moments of when holidays are happening. uh, Because these holidays, whether it be Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, Passover, Hanukkah, these are important moments in the life cycle of our Jewish friends and neighbors. And we need to acknowledge that. Mm. Uh, and we need to also acknowledge, this, this is what I say, this was something, these, these events were also very important in the life of Jesus. 
I mean, he stopped and he paused at these particular holidays. And, and so try to make that connection uh, with your Jewish friend and, and then see where God goes from there. Using holidays. One way, maybe sending a card if we don't live near a Jewish friend, or even if we do, sending a card is appropriate. Exactly. A card, a, a text, you know, just make the phone call, whatever yeah. is easiest, just so that your Jewish friend knows, yes, they know me, they care about me. And then you'll see God open up doors. Using holidays to open up doors. That's Justin Crone here on The Land and the Book. Jerry Jenkins has written just a few books, more than 200, actually. And unlike most authors, he's written in multiple genres, biography, romance, self-help, mystery, and young adult fiction. In case you were born and raised by a nomadic desert tribe, you'll be interested to know that Jerry is also the co-author of the Left Behind series, with tens of millions of books sold. But he has an interesting connection to the television series that you've heard us talk about before here on The Land and the Book. It's called The Chosen, created by another guy with the Jenkins name. Welcome, Jerry, and explain that connection right up front. Well, great to be with you, Jen. And uh, yeah, Dallas Jenkins, our son, created The Chosen. And, um, you know, I helped him get his career started back when he got out of college uh, 20 years ago or so and uh, sort of financed some of his early movies and that type of thing. But this one is really on its own. And I feel like I've kind of pressed my nose up against the glass and said, can I play too? You know, and uh, <laughs> he saw the value of, uh, of me writing a novel to go along with each season. And I've just had a ball doing it. It's, it's just been, you know, I, I sometimes say I have to watch the episodes. I get to watch the episodes mm. sometimes 20 times or more, mm. and I never get tired of one scene. They all yeah. move me emotionally, and it's just been a, a great thrill to be involved with this. Well, So some listeners might be immediately asking, this is based on Series 1 and presumably you know, Series 2 and 3 to follow. Why should I read the book if I've already watched the video series? Well, I try to bring something fresh to the page that uh, that they can't do on screen, and that's the inner monologue, the feelings and things like that of each character. So while admittedly the chosen TV series is already speculative, it's, it's imagining what these scenes could have been like leading up to the truths we see in Scripture. When they do a scene that actually has happened in the Bible, they're as true to Scripture as they can mm. be. We, we all revere the Scripture. We want people to go back to the Bible and back to church and that type of thing. But they're speculating on, you know, if, if there's been different kinds of relationships, different kinds, of, even, even inventing characters sometimes to say, here's how the disciples might have reacted with somebody else and leading up to this incident. I'm going even deeper than that and saying, here's what that person was thinking at the time, how he was mm -hmm. feeling, what brought him to that place. And it's been really gratifying to hear from readers saying, wow, for one thing, the scenes that are from the series are almost exact in the book because I want, you know, it always yes. bothers me when I see a movie and then read a book and they're so different. Yes. This way the dialogue is right on, you know, on pace with what they saw on the screen, but the stuff leading up to it is the extra element that I yeah. try to bring to the table. I, I noticed that, uh, you know, it was immediately familiar, but also the writing in this uh, book features a tremendous amount of additional delicious dialogue, as I call it, rich details. And I finally feel as a reader, uh, that there's enough landscape for us to get to know these characters better. Talk about the challenge of writing all this dialogue. Yeah, that's always been kind of a thing of mine. I try to, to really listen to dialogue in real life, to understand dialogue from 2021, you know, <laughs> um, when you're trying to do dialogue from the first century. 
But trying to understand the nuances and how people express themselves, what they say and what they don't say. Yeah. Uh, I try to make characters distinct from each other and uh, and really try to get it so that I don't always have to identify the character. Hopefully the reader will recognize that character by the way he speaks. Jerry Jenkins joins us today on The Land and the Book. His novel, The Chosen, is based on the television series by the same title. I want to read an excerpt. Uh, It's a familiar story. The Samaritan woman, Jesus, they're at the well. She should have known. What is this lunacy? Fotina starts toward the path. This is Jesus speaking now. The first one, as in the first husband, was named Raman. She stops. You were a woman of purity. How could he know that? Who was excited to be married? I was, but, but he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. Who has told him this? And it made you question marriage. It's true. It's true, but but I never told a soul. And even the practice of your faith. She drops the yoke, and the water begins to pour out. Stop it! Is it possible this man is who he claims to be? To know of her next husband, he would have to be that or a sorcerer. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Her tears roll. Why are you doing this? He slowly steps toward her. I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. He smiles again. Well, the scene goes on, and I have to ask you, Jerry, did you cry reading this scene? I I teared up reading it. I'm fighting tears now hearing you read it. Um, It moves me every time, and it it strikes me that, you know, we've heard this story all our lives, that he knew this stuff about this woman. He told her that she had five husbands, and the one she's living with now is not her husband. But it never hit me until I saw Dallas and his two co-writers in the script give all those details. Now, we know that's not the exact words. We, you know, they're speculating. They're saying, if he knew all this, this is way, the way it might have gone. He would have known their names. He would have known all these details. He would have just basically freaked her out by telling her stuff that nobody else could know. And uh, I find that deeply moving. And, yeah. you know, of all people, Robert Frost, the great poet, is the one who said, no tears in the writer no tears in the reader. Yeah. And I'm telling you, there were tears in the writer throughout writing this this novel. I get it. I get it. Let me ask you, though, what was the hardest part about writing the book? You've written so many, and, and this is not a new genre to you, so what was hard? I think the hardest part um, is basically the setting being first century. You know, I tend to think contemporarily, mm-hmm. and I don't want to have anachronisms. I don't want to use, you know, I mean, there are certain things that and people have even criticized the series for this. They say, well, they wouldn't have used that word or this word. And Dallas says they wouldn't have used the word the either. They didn't speak our language, Mm -hmm. but they had terms for the kinds of idioms that we use. And so they, they speculate on those. But uh, I think the toughest scene to write, I think was the, the deliverance of, uh, of Mary Magdalene. It was so moving for Jesus to call her by her real name and have her realize Nobody else knows my real name. Mm -hmm. He must be the one who created me and can redeem me. 
that was uh, such a moving scene to me to write. And, and uh, I mean, it was gratifying too, but boy, it just sort of leaves you, you leaves you wasted. Yeah. Yeah. It's The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, just loving this conversation with novelist Jerry Jenkins, who has written The Chosen. And yes, it's based on the television series you've probably seen. Let me take you to another moment. A gaunt man in a ragged, sage-green tunic and filthy yellow turban staggers toward them, his breath coming in rasps, his skin ravaged. John pulls a knife. It's a leper! Stay back! Cover your mouths, little James shouts. Don't breathe his air. Don't come any closer, John says, menacing with his blade. It's okay, John, Jesus says, a hand on his arm. It's okay. He sheds his own pack and approaches the man. The others reach out to Jesus, calling, Rabbi, Rabbi, no, his disease. Jesus silences them with a look and a raised hand. As he turns back toward the man, the leper cries, Please. Please, he drops to his knees. Please don't turn away from me. Jesus stands over him. I won't. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Only if you want to, I submit to you. He's sobbing now. My sister, she was a servant at the wedding. She told me what you could do. I I know you can heal me if you are willing. Jesus kneels before him. I am willing. Boy, the line just comes alive, Jerry, in that scene. You've done such a beautiful job of bringing this, uh, this leper to us. Uh, what was going through your mind as you put that together? Well, imagine the desperation of somebody in that day when there were laws and rules where you could, you know, a leper could not come within four cubits of a person uh, who's, who's not diseased. And People were scared to death of lepers. Imagine how this guy, you know, as he says, his sister was at the wedding, so he knows. He comes with faith, believing that Jesus can heal him. But if he turns away from him, he's totally lost. Yeah. No one else will even get near him. They run the other way. They, they warn him to stay back. And he's saying, that's where he's begging Jesus, mm-hmm. don't turn away from me. Um, that was a tremendously moving scene yeah, to yeah. see on the screen and to write. Obviously, there's there's research that goes into this. Even so, what caught you by surprise as these characters came to life for you as you're writing? Well, I think one of the things that Dallas talked about from the beginning of doing this whole series was so many Jesus movies and TV series um, put these guys on such pedestals that you're kind of watching statues or famous paintings of these people, and they're hard to identify with. And of course, Jesus is very hard to identify with because he's perfect. But the way they get around that is they make these guys normal people with flaws. Now, obviously, Jesus doesn't have any flaws, but they give Jesus a sense of humor and this fun and camaraderie he has with his friends. And so now when I read scripture, I start seeing these characters on the page. And I've read the Bible all my life, and I've never really, you know, connected with a, with a visual image of what these guys must look like, unless it's one of those, as I say, famous paintings or statues. And now I'm seeing normal people and remembering the little flaws and the, the anger, the frustration, the bickering they do among each other and that type of thing. Uh, that has really changed the way I read Scripture, and I find it really refreshing. 
Few people have written or sold as many books as Jerry Bruce Jenkins, our guest today on The Land and the Book. We're talking about his novel based on season one of the critically acclaimed TV series, The Chosen. What are we supposed to do with this book, Jerry? I mean, we've read it, and now what? Um, I would say I found myself more in love with Jesus, more curious about him than ever. What's your desire for the reader, though, Jerry? Well, that's it. That's sort of the ultimate. We want people who are already believers and lovers of Jesus to know him better. And especially we want people who don't know him to meet him. And as Dallas often says, Jesus will make you someone you're not and the someone you've never been. That's what happens to the disciples in the story. That's what happens to the people who aren't necessarily disciples, but like the woman at the well or the leper, uh, other people that Jesus healed. Um, they're thrown into an entirely new existence. And, you know, every once in a while we'll hear from people who say, well, make sure you don't substitute this for the Bible. And of course not. We don't want anybody to substitute right. anything for the Bible. We want to drive them to the Bible and say, if this surprises you or makes you wonder, in fact, maybe you're not initiated in, in biblical stuff, and you wonder which of this is really from the Bible and which is just speculation. I think readers give us that freedom. Readers and viewers give us that freedom to speculate, but some want to know. Mm -hmm. What if this is really from the Bible? And when they get to the Bible, they realize it's the big stuff that's already there. It's the miracles, yeah. the healings, and that type of thing, and the, and the preaching, the parables. The other stuff is side stuff, just to kind of bring it to life for you and make you understand what it might sound like. But our whole goal is to get people back to the Bible and to meet Jesus. The book is called The Chosen. It's based on the television series you've seen. A link to it at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Always a pleasure to connect. Thanks for your time, Jerry. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Up next, it's Charlie Dyer with a fresh stack of Bible questions here on The Land and the Book. It's segment three here on The Land and the Book, a segment we devote exclusively to answering your questions. You know, it's just inescapable that when you spend any time in the scriptures, you're going to come up against something that makes you say, why or how? And that's what this segment is all about, answering those very questions. And you can connect with us any old time at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. If you're joining us midstream, Charlie Dyer is our host, the guy opening his Bible, answering those questions. I'm John Geiger, as curious as you are as to what some of the answers are going to be. With that said, Charlie, let's dig in, starting with Nancy's question. She says, I have a good friend who is really into Hebrew roots and is very excited about her Sefer Bible. I saw red flags after speaking to her. Can you help? Yeah, and uh, Nancy, I have red flags as well. I have several problems with the Sefer Bible. Uh, several of the apocryphal and pseudepigraphal books that have been added, frankly, just contain historical inaccuracies. That's why they're not part of our Bible. I also have a problem with a movement that's often connected with this Bible. The Hebrew Roots Movement is trying to push the church back into accepting Judaism as normative for the church today. However, at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, Jesus' brother James Peter, the Apostle Paul, along with all the other leaders of the early church, specifically wrote to Gentile believers and told them what God's expectations were for them. Uh, being circumcised and following all the civil and ceremonial laws in the Mosaic Law were not included. 
Paul wrote to the believers in Colossians 2, and he, he said, Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are shadows of things that were to come. The reality is found in Christ. Paul specifically singled out not being required to follow the Mosaic dietary laws or religious festivals. Finally, in Galatians 1-3, to Paul delivered a very pointed warning to those who are trying to push others into following the Old Testament laws as necessary for salvation. In fact, in chapter 1 there, verse 9, he says, If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Now, that's about as strong a warning as he can give. Hmm. Uh, so uh, I think we really do need to be careful of a movement that's trying to push Jewish roots back on Gentile Christians. Elsie takes us to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, asking why are verses 4 through 10 ignored by the church today? Uh, yeah, those are the verses that talk about head coverings, and it has generated a lot of disagreement between good and godly people. So I, I need to start by saying uh, there are different interpretations, and not everyone's going to agree with mine. I think the main issue in the passage is the fact that God expects us to demonstrate the proper honor and respect for authority when we worship him. Paul addresses the basic order of authority in, in verse 3. There's God, then Christ, then man, then woman. In verse 4, Paul explains what a man is to do during the service to demonstrate his submission to authority. And then in verse 5, he explains what a woman's to do during the service to demonstrate her submission to authority. Uh, the question that isn't as clear, though, is whether Paul's illustration regarding covering or not covering one's head relates to the specific cultural situation in Corinth, or if he's describing a universal principle that applies for all time. Uh, the fact that Paul relates the issue to the angels uh, watching, he says that in verse 10, would suggest he has in mind more than just a temporary cultural issue in Corinth. But even then, is the key point the need for a woman to have her head covered while speaking or praying during a service, or is the need for both women and men to be sure that somehow they publicly acknowledge their submission to God's authority because they're being observed by angels, even when we can't see them? Now, I personally see the main point being our need to acknowledge our willingness to submit to God and his authority over us. In the church in Corinth, this involved men not covering their heads while prophesying or praying to show their respect for God, while women were to have their heads covered to show their respect for God's created order. Uh, we live in a society today, you know, we demand our rights, and mm -hmm. that's why this passage seems so hard for us. But I believe if we're all willing to humble ourselves and acknowledge God's right to rule over us, uh, we will be less concerned about how this applies in our cultural situation today and more concerned about wanting the angels who are invisibly attending our service to know we want to bow in submission to God's authority over our lives. Vernon points us to the fourth commandment, which begins, remember the Sabbath. And the Bible teaches us that the Sabbath was created for all mankind so that we can rest in the Lord. So why is Sunday, a Catholic creation that dates from the Constantine Edict of 321, celebrated as the day of worship? My studies of the Bible don't present Sunday as a day of worship. Actually, worshiping on Sunday isn't a Catholic creation dating back to Constantine. It goes back to the beginning of the church. Now, here are several reasons why I think keeping the Sabbath isn't practiced by most Christians. Uh, first, the command to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy isn't repeated as a command for the church in the New Testament. Uh, I just mentioned earlier, Acts 15, it's not one of the requirements placed on Gentile Christians by the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, second, the church began meeting on Sunday because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead. 
Uh, in Acts 20, verse 6, Paul went to Troas, and he was there seven days. But then in verse 7, it says, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. That is, Paul was there on Saturday, but that wasn't the day the church gathered. They gathered instead on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Paul talked about taking a collection for the saints in the church in Jerusalem, and he said it was to be presented on the first day of every week. Uh, the saints were gathering on Sunday, not Saturday. Uh, finally, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul specifically said that the Sabbath, along with several other Jewish laws, were mere shadows of what was to come. And this is the passage, again, I referred to earlier, Colossians 2, 16 and 17. He said, let no one come as your judge in regard to food or drink, which are Jewish dietary laws, or in respect to a festival or new moon, uh, the Jewish ritual days, or a Sabbath day. And then he says, those are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I think Paul's saying that those regulations were given to point Old Testament saints toward the Messiah. But now that he's come, those regulations aren't necessary for the present age. And that's why we worship on Sunday to remember the day our Lord rose from the dead. Appreciate your company here at The Land and the Book. Thanks for listening and for letting us know that you listen. Our email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Chris says, my question concerns Luke 22, where Jesus gives his disciples instructions at the Last Supper, especially where he says, now he who has a money belt is to take it along and also his bag. And he who has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. His reference to swords is a bit puzzling to me. Would you please expand on what you think he's saying and how might those instructions apply to born-again believers today? Uh, I see two things happening in those verses. Uh, first, Jesus is signaling a change in the disciples' ministry in light of his impending arrest, trial, and death. Uh, he previously sent them out you know, without provisions, and God took care of their needs. But from now on, they'll need to make preparations for their ministry since Jesus will no longer be present with them on earth. Now, as a result, they'll need money belt, and they'll need a bag for provisions and, and a sword for personal protection. Now, the application to believers today might be that as we serve the Lord and live out our lives, God expects us to live wisely, including saving funds, taking basic steps for personal protection as well. You know, this is not a verse on why you should carry concealed weapons. Uh, today, if I were applying that sword passage, I might say we, we ought to have reserve funds and savings or make sure to lock our house and car when we go out. Now, I do see a second connection in the passage, and I, and I want to focus specifically on that mention to swords. I think it relates to the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 12. Jesus needed to be, quote, counted with the criminals, according to Isaiah 53, 12. And by carrying swords and initially at least trying to stop the soldiers from arresting Jesus, the disciples would have been considered criminals. When the disciples responded to Jesus that they had two swords between all of them, Jesus said that was enough in the sense that that was enough to fulfill the passage. They could have been considered an armed mob by the authorities. So Jesus was indeed numbered with the transgressors, just as Isaiah had predicted. Time for one more question. We'll squeeze in real quickly here from Dan. He says, I thought I heard someone say something about a connection between the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and New Testament and the Israelites' 400 years of slavery in Egypt. I asked my pastor, and he said there was no connection. What do you think? Well, in this case, I agree with your pastor. Uh, now, apart from the similar amounts of time in each passage, I really don't see any other specific connection between those two periods, uh, one occurring before Israel became a nation, one after the close of the Old Testament, but before the events of the New Testament began. But again, apart from the similarities in time, uh, there really is no other connection. 
And that's a great look at today's questions that have come in via email. Our address again, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. If it's been a while since you've sent an encouraging note to this station, letting them know about your appreciation for this ministry, now's a good day to do it, a good time to do it. Maybe uh, it's a text, maybe it's an email, maybe it's an old-fashioned card or letter. You know, you have no idea how much goodwill you're generating as you step up in that way. So thanks for your kindness and letting them know that you listen to and appreciate the land and the book. We're up next. Charlie Dyer returns with his devotional, a passage in scripture, a place in Israel, here next. Hi, and welcome back to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Charlie, I have a confession to make to you. Oh, go ahead. When I was a kid, uh, I suppose I was at least as annoying as any of the boys in our house. And I remember a number of times irritating uh, my dad in particular. And when he had enough, he would say, young man, I've had just about enough out of you. (laughs) I always wanted to say, yeah, well, you let me know when you've had enough and then I'll quit. (laughs) Your devotional today is titled, When Enough is Never Enough. I don't think that's exactly what you had in mind. Not exactly what Solomon had in mind in Ecclesiastes 5, but uh, we'll get there. All right, we'll get there right after we take this quick look at uh, a Holy Land experience. It's a testimony, a firsthand account of someone who's been to the Holy Land and now comes back with this perspective. Well, thank you for asking me to comment on the trip. The whole trip is added a fact to my faith. I just know that my faith is not based on suppositions or whatever people think. I saw the places that you show me. But the thing that probably meant most to me was the Mount Bento sitting on top of of the Golan Heights and uh, looked down on that Valley of Tears where I saw, where where I followed all the wars that Israel had. And you could see 1,500 tanks coming up there and what Israel had to deal with. And and uh, I just, I, mean, I just tingled and hearing the actual artillery in the backfield, with the Syrian uh, revolution going on, and then meeting the Israeli patrol earlier and uh, talking to him. And then one of them is from Maryland. He came over from, born and raised in Maryland, and came over to join the Israeli army, just because he thought he, that was part of his duty. I, I just uh, caused me to, you know, I, I can't explain it, but I tingled when I when I watched and looked at all that and just uh, added so much to all I'd been reading. I never tire of enjoying these Holy Land experiences. Great thoughts, and thanks very much for sharing. Have you ever had the experience of trying to do something nice for someone, and you gave it your all, and they said thank you, but you got the idea it wasn't quite enough? Some people are like that, you know. It's like enough is never enough. But what do you say we open our Bibles and head to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 as we invite Charlie to share his devotional with us? Charlie? How much do we need to be happy? Every so often a report comes out claiming to know the answer. An activist group in Switzerland set the figure at $33,000 a year. They want to enact a law guaranteeing everyone that much income, whether they work or not. A French group came up with a very similar number. They determined that satisfaction hits its bliss point, the perfect point, when a national per capita income reaches $33,000. So would we solve all our problems and find national and international happiness 
if we could just make sure everyone had $33,000 to spend? The answer is no, for two basic reasons. And to understand those reasons, we need to visit with the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon. Solomon had it all. Wealth, fame, power, influence. He was able to own whatever he wanted, go wherever he pleased, and do whatever suited his fancy. He lived the high life in a palace filled with so much exotic cedar wood that it was known as the House of the Forest of Lebanon. Its 45-foot ceilings were supported by cedar beams stretched out over massive cedar pillars. Let's walk into this fragrant-smelling palace for an audience with King Solomon to learn his perspective on why enough is never enough. The first thing we notice as we enter the palace is the beehive of activity all around us. The outer hall is filled with guards and attendants, cooks, maids, administrative staff, local representatives, and a host of others who, well, it's not exactly clear what they do, but they all seem to be scurrying around looking busy. As we enter the inner recesses of the palace, the noise abates only slightly, and we finally get a glimpse of Solomon. He's surrounded by a mob of advisors, some of whom are holding scrolls while others have some sort of tablets on which they seem to be writing. They're shouting all sorts of different numbers to the king, and he's trying to make sense of all the babble. Wait, income first, then expenses. Go through the revenue again. I want to know the precise income we brought in last month from taxes and trade and tariffs and tribute and the different treaties. No, no, don't combine them. I want the numbers broken down so we can look for trends. I want a detailed accounting of all the expenditures, army, palace expenses, administrative salaries, building projects, supplies, and divide the supplies up by region. How much are we sending to each of the regional governors? And how much are we spending on overhead here in Jerusalem? Now, leave and don't come back until you can provide solid numbers. I have guests and I want to talk with them alone. The room clears out. As the door slams shut, Solomon sighs deeply and his shoulders visibly slump. He rubs his eyes as if trying to erase the jumble of numbers inside his head. And then he composes himself, quietly walks over to where we're standing and says, I'm sorry for all the distractions that kept you waiting. Now, what can I do for you? Well, your majesty, we've come from the future to ask you a simple but profound question. How much does a person need to be happy? When is that point reached? Solomon pauses, looks distractedly around the room, and then motions for us to come closer. As we do, he reaches out and picks up a scroll from a nearby table. Here's the conclusion I came to on the matter. He starts reading. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. He looks up from the scroll, and I've discovered there are two reasons this is so. Here's the first. Then looking back at the scroll, he reads, When good things increase... Those who consume them increase. So what's the advantage to the owner except to look on? Solomon stops and gestures around at the walls of his magnificent palace. This house is beautiful, is it not? But do I possess it or does it possess me? I've had to hire scores of advisors just to account for the costs of staffing and maintaining it. The more I have, the more I have to spend just to keep track of everything and to guard against theft and misappropriation. It costs me my wealth to guard and protect my wealth. 
But there's a second reason that enough will never be enough. Solomon walks back to the door and opens it and points to a young man standing guard just outside. That servant enjoys the same lovely views of this palace I do. But I bear the financial burden of keeping it furnished and staffed and repaired. So who's happier at the end of the day, that young man or me? He returns to the table and picks up the scroll. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. And the dark circles under Solomon's eyes let us know that he was writing that from personal experience. Wealth and pleasure come at a cost, physically and emotionally. And it's a cost many fail to calculate until it's too late. As we walk from the palace, we're troubled by Solomon's words. How much do we need to be happy? If our goal is to find happiness in material things, the answer seems to be that we'll never have enough. Certainly that's the conclusion reached by the world's wisest man. When is enough enough? It's enough when we learn the secret of being content with what God has provided. That's the truth Solomon discovered. And it was just as true when Paul wrote to Timothy a thousand years later. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we've brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with a pang. So when is enough enough? How much do we need to be happy? If we master the secret of contentment, the answer is not nearly as much as some people think. Hmm. Very profound, Charlie. Imagine a private audience with King Solomon. That would be something else, wouldn't it? It would. And in fact, that's how I read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's Solomon taking us in on the inside and saying, you saw all the glitz and glitter out there. Now let me tell you what it's really worth. Yeah. I'm a collector of quotes, and I think I'll have to add to mine your line there. It costs me my wealth to guard and protect my wealth. Isn't that the case? It is. That's the observation when I read that. It's one of those aha moments in Uh that book. Yeah. You know what? We would love to hear from you how this broadcast, maybe Charlie's devotional in particular on a weekly basis, is touching your life. You can email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Let us hear from you. We would love to know what you're thinking, what's working for you, maybe even a suggestion or two for the broadcast. Thelandandthebook at moody.edu. And with that, we'll say goodbye, but not before thanking the management at this station for carrying the broadcast, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, our co-producer, Dan Anderson. I'm John Geiger, thanking you for listening today to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.